All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today and letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. We'd love you to support this show. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Your likes and subscription helps us to grow and attract interviews and content. So please retweet and share our posts. Your contributions are appreciated. Welcome to episode 461 of the KISS FAQ podcast. We're back. This is being filmed right after talking about the first three interviews from the Rock and Pod, so we're not even going to pretend that uh, it's a different day. Let's uh, jump straight in with... Uh, this is actually the interview that I think is going to get the most comments. Jeremy Asbrock. I'll let him speak for himself. Hey, Jeremy Asbrock, welcome to my first interview of the day this, at the Rock and Pod Expo. I've been looking forward to this one most of all. Uh, for all of your listeners out there who frequent your message board, I read your stuff. Yeah, so I do want to get to some of the message board crap after we talk about some cool stuff. Because, Let's do. You know, first of all, you've got a new song out. Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about that a lot. Rock City Machine Company. So, uh, you know, Phil and Ryan and I have been playing for 10 years together now. And the number one question that we always had was, are you guys going to do anything original? Are you going to do anything original? And then... Uh, you know, I got to thinking about it one day, and you know, like as far as our journey together, that was the only thing that we had not done. Because you know, like after Big Rock Show and the Rock and Roll Residency and Gene and then Ace, it's like, well, what next? What we go play for another artist or something? Like, I guess the last thing we really need to do is do some original music together. And I went to Ryan's house, and it's like, man. We, we should do this. And, you know, Ryan had a, a long relationship with Marty Fredericks, and he's like, well, should I call Marty? And it's like, yeah, yeah, you should. And uh, uh, Craig Lindsley, owner of Lindsley Records, wanted to help us do it, so he called Marty, and we just started writing songs. And it's turned out really good. Man. It's got a lot of really cool influences that come through, but it also has enough of its own identity for me to say, that's a badass piece of music. Thank you. That, you know, I didn't just give it one listen. I put it on loop. It was good enough to just not listen to one. So congratulations Thank on it. Thank you very much. I'm really excited for everybody to hear the rest of it. There's eight songs. Uh, one of them is a cover of Ramblin' Gamblin' Man by Bob Seger. Nice. And, I mean, for those of you who know what Ryan's voice sounds like, his voice was tailor-made for that song. And it, it, it turned out way better than I could imagine, and I'm really excited for everybody to hear everything else. So how did the song come together? Was it uh, just one of those ones that wrote itself? Well, or? that song, Ryan was on a trip to Los Angeles, and he woke up with the riff in his head. So he said he avoided radio, television, and everything until Guitar Center opened. And he showed up at Guitar Center right at opening, went straight to the acoustic room, picked up an acoustic, worked out the riff, played it, made a voice memo, and you know, we started writing it with Marty from there. Now what about the guitar duties on it? I mean... Uh, Ryan played rhythm, I played rhythm, I played all the solos, and Phil played bass. We kind of kept our Ace Fraley lineup uh, instrumentation intact. Although, uh, 
the solo is split into two on that one, and Philip wrote the first half that sounds like Richie Blackmore, and I think we both kind of heard that because, I don't know, like, that section kind of sounds like Highway Star to, to me and him. And he messaged me one day, and he's like, hey man, do you have anything for that part yet? No, and he sent that to me, and I really just didn't feel like I could improve on it at all. It was perfect, so I played his solo note for note on that first half. No, it's got a real good catchy tone to it. I was getting a British vibe out of it. Obviously, we all have our own musical vocabularies that we go back to yeah. when we think of these I things. I thought the chorus was a little Judas Priest-ish. Yeah. yeah, 70s Priest. Yeah. Definitely. So you're out. You've been out on the road with Ace. I didn't get to see you guys when you're on the West Coast last month. My apologies. Oh, yes. I was on the East Coast at the time. Um, but you kind of alluded to it with your intro there about uh, you read the stuff on the message board. But I want to ask you about those two songs that just got added into the set because it was great to see the set get some changes to it. And I know it never makes everyone happy. Yes. Uh, ultimately, it was that. I mean, we. Look, man, Ace comes from a school where, you know, you kind of get a set together and, and you play that set for everybody. I mean, the internet and YouTube has kind of ruined that, but at, at the same time, that's that's kind of not really fair. Just, look, man, he's from a, a, a different school, and that's just the way that is. But, you know, with that California run coming up, I knew, like, with the Canyon Club in particular, that was going to be the third time that we played there and if we didn't shake it up a lot we were going to be playing close to the same set for the third time and I, I knew we couldn't do that and it was just it was time and man he was very receptive to all of my suggestions and you know I, I did kind of spearhead that but yeah, and that was going to be my question about how these changes come in. Do you guys as it was the band the last, work it up it and was then the last present? show of, of last year and I'd kind of gone through all of his records and songs that he's done in the past because I knew like bringing in something that he had never, ever, ever done was going to be a tall order. You know, it needed to be in his brain somewhere. And, uh, you know, I, I listened to all of it and wondered, you know, what, what would sound good live, you know? And uh, Stranger in a Strange Land struck me as a good live tune. He had done that one on the first tour. I think he had done it a couple times, like since he had left Kiss for the second time. And Insane had a video, it was a single, and you know, that one really hadn't been done a lot. And you know, I sing Strange Ways, and we had done Strange Ways every show I've done with him, so I thought, you know, like, well, we hadn't really done Getaway, and I can sing Getaway, so, man, he, I don't know, he went for it. And, it's cool. One of the things that grabbed me, I was watching the YouTube video. Well, I wasn't there, so I benefit from that YouTube video yeah. uh, of you doing Getaway. Yeah. I just see a lot of passion on your face for that music. What is it like to be, I mean, can you even explain that to us listeners? What it's like to be standing next to Ace Frehley singing Getaway. I mean, that's got to be so cool. Well, since that song's really fresh in the set, that passion is very real. And I mean, look, man. I got my first KISS record when I was four years old. I play guitar and am a musician because of Ace Frehley. So, you know, the gravity of being in his band or playing with Gene, none of that is lost on me. Like, I still feel it like, wow, is, is this really happening? Like, this, this is crazy. And since that song is so new and, you know, it kind of rocks, it is a lot of fun to play. Do you still get off on, you've been touring with Ace now for a while. 
of just being on that stage with someone of his stature. You've been on the stage with Gene Simmons. I mean, these have got to be incredible experiences. To, um, you're a working musician. You're a real deal on your own before we even take those names and add it to the equation. But do you just like feel like you're living in a dream with these experiences that you're blessed with? Yes, I do. And it's not just like a, a personal singular experience it's just when I look over and I see Ace I also see Ryan and I, and I saw Phil prior to that and like all of us were friends before any of this so the shared experience is what makes it really really awesome you know because I don't have to do it alone I have my close friends to share it with I know that sounds like kind of hokey but it, it's true yeah, well, you've been a part of a lot of musical experiences with the same kind of group, and it's it's broader than just the three guys because you've got three racks, you've got the rock and roll residency, which has a few people cycling through it depending on who's around, and then you've got you know the Rock City Machine Company. What's the timeline for an album with that? What what are your plans? Well, uh, the album for that? is done, so uh, you know like vinyl printers are backed up six months so it'll be six months before we actually have that product in our hands uh, the plan is to do CDs prior to that so that should be two three months something like that so it will all happen this year what about the rock and roll residency EP that you did which is also a really good bit of music really entertaining it is, do you uh, plan on physical for that at any point or there was are that no just plans for thing? that right now it is lost out in the cosmos right now uh, so that was on a label called EMP which was Dave Ellison's label they folded the label and honestly I, I don't really know what's going on with any of that it's just if, if you got it, congratulations. If you didn't, I have no idea when you're going to get it again. <laughs> right. And you mentioned vinyl for, for the new stuff. How important is vinyl now as a revenue stream? Or not necessarily just talking about the money side, but in terms of being able to survive as a working musician. Well, there was just an article that came out that vinyl outsold CDs for the first time in like 32 years or something like that. So, you know... Since people are buying mainly vinyl, it it is pretty important. And you know, honestly, since I haven't had my own vinyl record to sell uh, since I was in a band called the Shazam, uh, I'm, I guess I'm going to find out. <laughs> Which I, I, I want to just give all our listeners: you think about Germany, you maybe just get pigeonholed into thinking about Ace and Gene, but the Shazam's got some pretty cool shit. That's that, very that was British the first to me. Band I was in, and yes, that was more of a '60s British experience. You know, lean real heavy on the Beatles and the Move and Cheap Trick and stuff like that. So that was that was kind of where like my ability to sing good harmonies and backup vocals came from. And man, we did a lot of great stuff. Like, uh, you know, we did a TV radio broadcast from Abbey Road. We played Earl's Court, and then a uh, little Steven latched onto the band, and we did a lot of stuff here as a result of that. And you know, but sometimes the wave does not break. So. You know, and there were what four albums, three albums, five, five, five yeah. albums, and uh, and then I, I just started doing stuff with Phil for fun around Nashville, and the residency was part of that, and then that kind of grew into its thing, and it's kind of funny what you accomplish when you quit trying and you just start having fun with your buddies. Yeah, and if you're making you music, you start playing and you're with smiling. Gene Simmons and Ace Frehley. <laughs> yeah, and smiling. 
because that's got to be what it's about. But what do you have planned for the rest of the year? You've just finished up uh, that leg with Ace. You've got this new single out now that people can go listen to. Yeah. Um, what's the rest of 2023 look for you? Uh, we're going to have a very busy summer with Ace. And by the time the summer wraps up, uh, Rock City Machine Company's album will be out. And hopefully we'll be doing a lot of work with that. I mean, you know, we kind of plan on trying to elevate that into something. I would, Ryan and I and Phil would all like it to do a little more than just be this little thing we did and we sell a few vinyls and that's that. I'd, I'd love to go do shows and make it live and breathe. Right. My last question for you is, obviously everyone knows about the importance and inspiration of a, a guy like Ace Frehley to you. Who are some of the other key players that you really feel are a part of your playing DNA? that you think back to a lick that you worked on, you know, you heard on a record, that really became centrally important to your musical identity. Man, there are so many of those guys, you know, both Aerosmith guitar players, Jimmy Page, uh, Zal Clemenson from the Sensational Alex Harvey Band, there's a lot of his playing in my playing. Uh, Angus Young, uh, you know, like, really all, all the greats that are regarded as the kings of guitar and that's why they are the kings of guitar I mean and it's really funny that all of those guys influenced so many players and like all of us sound different we all interpreted all of that a little differently like even Phil and I you know we are very close in age and personality and musical taste but he and I don't really play alike oh and I can't leave out Eddie Van Halen like Eddie is such a big guy in my playing, and you can't hear any of his playing in mine, but like his rhythm guitar playing definitely has an effect on how I play rhythm and like what chord inversions I would use or string groupings and stuff, because you know, he kind of strays away from just your typical bar chord. And you know, when Rock City Machine Company comes out, you'll hear that. And when that does come out, you'll hear basically every classic rock band in that stuff. So you said my other main band here, Aerosmith. What's your favorite Aerosmith song or album? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, put you on the spot. Uh, my favorite Aerosmith album is probably Rocks, even though Night Bob plays Rocks before every single Ace show, so you'd think I'm tired of it now, but, you know, I still love it dearly. Well, Night Bob, again, I've interviewed him for my Aerosmith books. You know, what does he bring into the sound mix that makes him that legendary status for you? Uh, volume and clarity. <laughs> volume and clarity. That's what it's all about. All right, Jeremy, any last words for everyone out there? Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, your posters real quick. I read all of your stuff. Uh, look, man, don't get hung up on uh, what we're not playing. <laughs> You know, like just kind of, kind of enjoy enjoy Ace for, for being here now. Look, because you know, I, I talked to a drummer of a very very prominent classic rocker who's planning his farewell tour. We are not going to have these people forever, so it, just enjoy it while it's here. If there's some new stuff added, just enjoy it. Detroit Rock City is not going anywhere. I mean, Ryan sings the shit out of that song, and you know, from the stage when we do those rarities. It gets a little response, but from the stage, Detroit Rock City gets the biggest response out of everything we do, and like, you know, everything gets gauged on that, so that's the way it is, and and as far as like people feeling like Ace should not play any non-Ace songs, 
even if I weren't in the band, I would feel that's bullshit because he was the guitar player for Kiss. He is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because he was a guitar player for Kiss. Those iconic solos are his, not Tommy Thayer's. So Ace deserves to get to play those iconic solos. And honestly, like Ace never carried an entire show vocally, so sometimes he needs a vocal break, and that's the perfect time for one of us to sing an awesome Kiss classic and for him to play those solos that made him fucking famous in the first place. As a fan, I want to hear that. As a fan, I want to hear it, and I also want to just celebrate that Ace is still out on the road. Man, Ace is three years younger than my mom, so I try to imagine my mom out there doing this, and it just, I can't. It does not compute, <laughs> does it? So, you know, we all travel kind of the same, and, you know, yeah, he's just, just love it and enjoy it, because you know what, man? One day it ain't going to be there. And that's a great way to end it. Enjoy the music, live the music, breathe the music. Jeremy Asbrock, thank you very much for joining us thank today. Thank you, Julian. Uh, I've been looking forward to your interview a lot. And, and thank you for the, the books and, and giving the Gene Simmons band our day-to-day -day in your book. Because, like, I have that forever. Because otherwise, I, I would kind of forget some of that stuff. And it's neat to have that. Well, we look forward to hopefully more Gene Simmons stuff in the future. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jeremy. All right. Thanks, Julian. All right. All right, Ken. Jeremy Asbrock taking the board to task with some very salient philosophy about just enjoy the fucking music while you still can. But yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> He's kind of, you know, bothered by, obviously, the our board uh, where there's people, you know, saying what Ace should do or what Ace songs they should play and and all this and that, you know, and, and on and on and on. Um, so, yeah, I know he brought that up, and uh, that was, you know, just kind of a statement, you know, just, you know, be happy with what you're getting, you know, you're still getting Ace, you know, to see, and he's still performing and so on. Um, the other stuff was interesting, you know, even you know, trying to interject or get Ace to play, you know, different songs, and, like, you know, Getaway was brought up, that was played most, you know, recently at the end of the year, I think it was, um, and uh, stuff like that. It was it was really good. Um, you know, it was an interesting interview. It's I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and of course they've got a new single out of original music, and right. it is the uh, Rock City Machine Company "Can't Stop the Train." Actually, it's a really good song. Uh, you know, it, it's great to hear them doing more music. We talked a, a bit about that. I, I brought, I wanted to cover that first before you know we got into the Ace stuff. And you know, Ace can play anything as long as he's got a drummer. So, <laughs> Mark, Jeremy Asbrock, thoughts on that? Sorry, I. I... I turned your, it down because your, I... Your vocal smoothing pedal was turned up too high. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoyed it. It was the first one that we got to check out. Uh, and it was really well done. And I enjoyed him talking about kind of the behind the scenes of, you know, uh, telling Ace, listen, maybe we should try a couple of different songs. And I like the fact that Ace actually respects them enough to kind of, you know, take mm -hmm. their word. Because it, he brought up a good point. If they didn't change some of these songs around... They would, they would be going back to some of these cities that they went to multiple times playing the same sets, you know, and they, they, yeah. they would get called to what, task like Kiss? for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but of course, you know, Kiss, they don't care, right? They, they, and, you know, and of course, Kiss will say, though, that they have, you know, a lot of stuff is sequenced and 
to a click and this and that for their video screens and their their cues for the pyro and stuff like that, where Ace doesn't have any of that kind of stuff, right? Which is one of the flexibilities you have of not doing a show with a click like that. So uh, as far as his commentary on the board, I mean, you know, you got to remember, guys, and I'm talking to you, the listeners right now, he, he's, of course, going to defend Ace about it, whether you guys are right or not about whatever comments you make, whether it's about set lists or whatever, because don't forget, he said it himself. He's on. He's doing one of his dream gigs. He's playing with the person that in, inspired him to play guitar to begin with. So if any of you guys were called up and were asked to join the Ace Freely Band and tour with him, I guarantee you your view on the board would change as well because you're you know, touring with a guy you know, that's making your dreams come true. So I think that that has a, a lot to do with it as well. You know, he wants to defend his his employer, his his boss, his friend now, right? So it, don't, don't be surprised that he made comments like that about it because, you know, he doesn't want to hear, you know, those kind of things said about Ace because the guy's working with him and, you know, talks with the guy who knows how, how often on a weekly basis. So I kind of understand that mentality. And I, I thought it was a good good interview. I mean, Julian, you, you asked some good questions and pulled out a lot of information that I thought was pretty important for, for people to hear. So, Yeah, and again, I don't think he's defending himself or Ace. I think he's reminding us everything is just a death away from ending. Yeah. Whether it's your own or someone else's. You know, that it is healthier to step back and enjoy it. You know, I was watching a video this week by uh, a British artist um, named Ren, and he mm. has one of the most emotionally um, charged performances called Hi Ren. I recommend everyone check that out. Yeah, I saw it. Because it does, you know, talk about a whole lot of issues that all too many of us are way too familiar with. And he he says something at the end about learning to soften learning to relax and i think that's a message that regardless of what's going on in your life that it's useful to kind of take that brazilian jiu-jitsu point of view about going with the flow and you're not going to conquer stuff with power you have to learn to accept things well, here they are. He's up on stage playing with a, a, one of his heroes, and he's getting to, you know, play some pretty cool songs, and Ace is playing along. He's singing it, you know, and to hear the passion coming out of him as a working musician about his own music, about the music that he plays with Ace, really is a reminder. You know, as Kiss goes out on the road for these last 50 dates, you know, apply that to, to them as well. Apply that to any band that you're going to see. It can all be done and over with tomorrow. And that, do you want to just focus on could have, should have, would have? Or do you want to focus on what is? It's a good reminder. And it wasn't an attack. It was a reminder. Mm -hmm. And that's how I took it. All right. Let's move into Blackjack. Sandy Gennaro. Mm. drummer with blackjack and as we found out he was also drumming for another band that i saw in 1989 or 90 can't remember which year so here's sandy all right so sandy gennaro thank you very much for joining the kiss faq podcast thank you so much julian i appreciate the opportunity so obviously we're a kiss podcast so you know where i'm going uh you i do it, it, 
you, you, you can take several different routes to that. But I, I, I'm going to go straight there. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Blackjack. Right. Obviously, that is the first real professional recordings that Bruce Kulick did. Correct. Um, I, I want to ask you about the formation of that band. How did Blackjack come about, and how did you get roped into that? I got roped into Blackjack. Uh, I was living out in L.A. at the time, and I... Uh, on a recommendation of, uh, well actually I wrote a resume and I sent the resume to managers of 50 bands that I really liked. I haven't done any anything of note. I was trying to get my first big break. And one of those resumes went to Peter Grant, uh, manager of Led Zeppelin. Right. And uh, my resume, all of their mail got forwarded through the attorney's office, Led Zeppelin's attorney's office, Steve Weiss. Right. And he opened my resume. Instead of forwarding it to England, he opened my resume. And right at that time, he was putting a band together around Michael Bolton, okay. or then known as Michael Bloaty. So he asked me to go to come to New York and, uh, and, and audition. And I flew to New York and got the gig. And Bruce, uh, Bruce was already involved with Michael. Uh, and then there was a different bass player there, the original audition. And then they flew Jimmy Haslip in. Right. And we rehearsed for a couple of days. Uh, we auditioned for a bunch of labels, and Polydor, Steve Weiss engineered a record deal with Polydor Records, and basically that was that was it. And then we, uh, based on Steve Weiss's connections and his clout in the music business, we got Tom Dow to produce the record. And that's a pretty Christ. major producer to get for a debut album at the time. I mean, he, he was on. He didn't. He didn't, as a rule, didn't um, produce new bands. But as a favor to Steve Weiss, uh, he did, and we were in. We found ourselves in Criteria Studios in Miami, being being produced by a Hall of Fame producer. That was one of my highlights of my 55-year career. That record, that first record. You know, your first love is that you always right. remember your first love. Right. You know? But how did the band work? I mean, you're obviously you're, you're you're musicians who didn't come together kind of naturally and do a scene first. You you were a construction. How did that affect the uh, band? from it, a starting point. We, we, we all had the chemistry as if it was a band that rehearsed in a garage. We, we all got along really, really well and uh, there was no real difference. When I was in Blackjack, there was, it felt like a, a, an organic band because we all got along as friends off stage and off, you know, out of the studio. We used to go hang out socially and so there was no real difference uh, being put together or being organically grown, if you will. You know what I mean? Right. Did you guys play together live before you entered the studio or were you put together and immediately go into the studio? And I know I'm asking you to go back 45 years and I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. So uh, if my memory is uh, correct, I think we went straight, we rehearsed uh, and went straight into the studio. After we got the record deal, we auditioned for Tom Dowd and he wanted to produce us again as a favor to, he loved the band, right. but as a favor to Steve and then we were in Criteria and then after the album was, was out, uh, then we went on tour. We we uh, opened for Peter Frampton for right. for a couple of uh, couple of weeks actually. It was the Peter Frampton tour right after the Frampton Comes Alive tour. Right. He supported an album called uh, I'm in You. Yep. And uh, yeah, so that was that was great. We we did limited amount of touring and then we went back into the studio. We did some club gigs around New York, my father's place in in uh, Long Island, but and then we went back into the studio to do the second record. 
Right. Now, by that time, you've, you've been together, you've played some shows live, so a band gets more locked in and tighter. Correct. I, I, I want to ask you as a drummer, who do you lock in with more? Are you a, Do you lock in with bass, or are you looking to guitar? Well, I don't... I. <laughs> it's not from an ego standpoint, but the structure of a band, the rhythm section, it comes from the drummer. Yep. It's the, it, bass Foundation. Player, it's the bass player's job to lock in with me. It's not my job to lock in with the bass player. I'm the source of the rhythm. Yep. And, and he is the... The bass player is the intermediate instrument between the drums and the melodic instrument. Okay, great. That's a great differentiation Absolutely. that you're only going to get when you ask a drummer. Because well, if you ask a different person, they won't necessarily uh, give that answer. Well, that's the way music is constructed. The right. drummer, the drummer, the rhythm comes from the drummer. And if it, and it's the drummer's job to bring the band in sync with him right. in order to produce a nice foundation for the singer to sing upon. Uh, if you have a bass player that says the bass player is the most important person in the band, I guarantee you he's got a five-string bass. Right. And he plays all kinds of chops, whatever. It's the bass player's job to lock in with that kick drum of the drummer. That's... that's that's something I've known for 55 years. So for the second album, Worlds Apart, um, you had Eddie Alford producing. Correct. Um, how did that differ for you than working with Tom Dowd? Because he's a, di a completely different character. Uh, it was very, very different. <laughs> it was very different. Not only is Eddie Alford a very a different person than Tom Dowd, but we did it in Woodstock in the wintertime, where the Tom Dowd album Criteria was in Miami. That's a different scene. And, and now we're in, I think it was in Levon Helm's studio, where it was really cold in there. And Eddie Offord wasn't, and I don't want to speak bad about anybody, it was a great experience, and the, the result was the Worlds Apart record, which I really like, and some of the tracks are even, are really, really good. But he, he wasn't Tom Dowd, let's put it that way. And sometimes he was an absentee producer. And a lot of times in that session, if my memory serves me correctly, it was Bruce and Michael basically putting the producer hat on. And that, right. You know what I mean? So Eddie Offer was, was cool, but I have more experience with Bruce and, and Michael both in being behind the board when producing yeah. than Eddie. Right. I don't know what, what Bruce has to say about Eddie, but that's basically my take. I've never really talked to Bruce about the album, uh, but when I first heard it, Airwaves, great song, uh, Welcome to the World, I think it's hilariously great. Um, my World is Empty Without You is that, a great that's, cover. That's a, a really, really powerful song, and the one that jumps out to me, and I didn't know who Michael Bolton was at that point when I first, maybe it's The Power of Love. Right. And then you hear where Michael went later. Right. Did, did you guys get the inkling that Michael struggled with his musical identity? He's a great rock singer, but wow, does he do that power R&B stuff really, really well. Yeah, he, he does it. I mean, he's got a great voice, and uh, uh, I love Michael, and it was a great experience working with such such a, a you know, a, a, a talent as him and Bruce. I was really, really lucky. Being in a band, my first recording band, my first album deal with such talented musicians, and uh, I always wondered why he, after Michael, after that first record, he kind of went into the R&B thing, but he always kind of, I don't think he likes to talk about the blackjack, the rock and roll genre. No, 83, he had Bob Kulik 
come in right. when he did his first solo album, went out on the road, kind of as Blackjack, Bruce went with him, right. and he did hard rock. I mean, it was harder rock than what he'd been doing with Blackjack, which had a lot of the R&B elements right. um, still in there. So it, it, that's what makes me think he didn't quite know where he wanted to be. Maybe not. I, I, I wasn't in his mind, so I don't really, I yeah. don't really know. I don't really know what what his vibe was. But uh, when I was on stage with him or in the studio, it was just awesome. It was very inspirational. So what went wrong with Blackjack? Why didn't it succeed, and how did it end? Uh, how did it end? Well, it kind of just dissipated after that second record. We, I don't think we did any touring in support of that record. Um, uh, you know, the story I get from some some record people, A and R people at Polygram, when I years and years later I say, you know what? Whatever happened with that? Why didn't it ever happen? Because it was really hyped. It was hyped really, really big. It was the priority uh, release in 1979, and. The feedback that I get from A&R people was that, well, maybe it was a little bit too overhyped. Mm. Because we had independent, aside from Polydor promotion people, we had independent promotion people going to radio saying that, hey, listen, this is the best thing since white bread. You got to play it, you know, signed by the people that signed Foreigner and this, you know, whatever. So they put it on and it was good, but it wasn't, it didn't live up to the hype. That's the vibe that I get. Right. We had a lot of promotion. We had everything a new band would ever want. You as had far music as, video. We had music video in 1979 uh, on the roof of Polygram on 7th Avenue. Full stage presence with a billboard. helicopter. Yep. Helicopter doing the opening and the outro. We had, uh, we, you know, we did videos before MTV. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was uh, full color four page ads on the back cover of Billboard. Yep. We had everything a new band would want, so that speaks to my the opinion that I've been given by A and R people that it was maybe it was just too much putting up, um, you know, the hype, and it didn't really live up to the hype. So, but individually, you've all done very well. Bruce obviously went on to play with a whole bunch of artists, and you know, even if we leave out Kiss, right. he's had an incredible career. Absolutely, um, and still going strong. Jimmy. Session work again with Kiss, Black, uh, Yellow Jackets. Yep. Uh, you just yep. you know, incredible. But you also have had an incredible career yep. afterwards. Well, what are your highlights for you, looking back at your career? The most important elements that you think people should check out from your catalog. Well, of work? for my catalog of work, listen. I, I people ask me all the time, what was my favorite gig? And listen, I, I from Blackjack, I went to the Pat Travers band, which was just awesome. I replaced Tommy Aldridge in that band, and that was just awesome. I went back with. Pat. That was in 81. I went back with Pat in, in uh, um, 2015 and played with him for about you know three or four years. 2010 and played with him about three or four years. Uh, Cindy Lauper, I did her for very first tour. I did um, uh, Joan Jett's tour uh, of the Far East in 1979-90. Uh, played on her uh, the hit list. That's uh, wild because I was at that show in Singapore. Why? Why you? Yep. And ironically, I'm going to be speaking uh, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which is the first time I was there was with Joan, and now right. I'm being asked to come back and speak through my public speaking. That's fantastic because that was one of the first big major metal or hard rock shows in Singapore because they still had the ban on long hairs right up until before that. Ah, okay. So you couldn't get in the country, but Joan. 
brought her band and yeah. we all went crazy. It was a fantastic thing. So well, great that's awesome that you, you were there in Singapore. Yeah, that was awesome. That's wild. Yeah, we, we landed. It was like the Beatles landing. There was like crowds at the airport. We did a press conference and all of that. It was awesome. And my, but my most memorable tour, if I may add, was a band called Kraft. In 1986, I did their record. Um, C-R-A-A-F-T, based in Germany. I did their record, and then they asked me to do the tour in support of that record in the summer of 86. And we opened for Queen oh for three God. and a half months in the summer, touring Europe, big open-air concerts, 110,000 people, soccer stadiums, whatever. It was, it was just awesome getting to know those guys and touring with them and hanging with them and partying with them it was just it was just an awesome experience you never heard of the band craft but that was one of my most memorable tours I've ever done in my whole life so with a 55 year old career you know who are your influences Ringo Starr Ringo what is it about Ringo Ringo is the consummate service drummer he serves the song he doesn't want to shine the spotlight on him he serves the song. And, you know, I'm sure in in, uh, in sessions at Abbey Road, I'm sure McCartney being a, himself a drummer and being him the writer of the, a lot of the songs dictated a lot of parts uh, to Ringo. I'm sure George Martin being the excellent producer dictated some parts to Ringo, but he always played them with a smile. Yep. In other words, yeah, you, you're the songwriter. You want me to play that? Okay. He wasn't like, hey, I'm the drummer, you know, whatever. Yep. You listen to some of those songs and still today I, I'm amazed at some of the the innovative beats that he played in some of those songs like I Feel Fine and, and Day Tripper and all of that it's just uh, he's, he's my major influence and will continue to be until I'm pushing up days. did you watch that Get Back documentary sure and just did. watching Ringo and how he approached those sessions isn't that a thing of beauty and you know what you know what the thing of beauty is the fact that Ringo, you, when you see in, in that movie, when you see like George Martin and some people hovering around trying to discuss, let's say for example, let's where we're gonna do our final concert. Should we do it on the roof? Should we do it here? Ringo was always there, but he never opened his mouth. Yep. He was always there, in, impeccably dressed, and he was just listening in on the conversation. You know, and I'm sure when asked of his opinion, he would give it, mm -hmm. but he never was, ah, you yeah. know, he, he was just awesome, man, as a person. And I had the had pleasure of meeting him in a shoe store in L.A. in 1976. But, um, but yeah, Ringo was my guy. What about Charlie Watts? I love Charlie Watts. Because he's, he's from a similar school. He's a, from a similar school of playing, and Charlie Watts, too, is a jazz drummer. He's mm -hmm. an accomplished jazz drummer, but he plays exactly what the song needs. Yep. You need, you want boom, bap, boom, honky-tonk woman, I'll give you honky-tonk woman. Yep. You know, and um, so he's a, he's a consummate service drummer as well. Awesome. Well, Sandy Gennaro, where can people find you, and what do you have currently going on professionally? Well, currently going on professionally, I have a book called Beat the Odds in Business in Life. I'm also doing a lot of um, uh, uh, motivational speaking to corporate, to conferences all over the world. I'm going, as I said, I'm going back going to, to Kuala Lumpur. Yep. Um, so yeah, you can get my book on, on Amazon. It's called uh, Beat the Odds in Business and in Life. Or you can go to my website, sandygenero.com, and you can get a um, contact me, email me, sandy at sandygenero.com. I have an audio book and a digital book. So that's basically, and I play in a band here in Nashville called Rock United. 
and we do covers of 70s and 80s awesome. material and the same songs I played in the 70s and 80s. That's fantastic. But yeah, we play around uh, around Nashville. So yeah, come and say hi and uh, email me. Let me know what you think of the podcast and uh, I would appreciate that very much. Awesome. Well, Sandy, thanks a lot for taking the time to join us You're today. very welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. All right. Ken, do you have the Blackjack albums on vinyl? No, I don't. Shame on I always, I always tell myself I'm gonna, you know, pick, you know, get them, and 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 then I just never get around to doing it. Start but with Worlds Apart. Holy crap! That, okay. I mean, just for where Bolton went um, with the R and B stuff, there's some mm -hmm. powerful singing and playing on that that album, which was, you know, a complete dud commercially. But what do you think of that interview? Yeah, it was really good, really informative. It's kind of, you know, I've always kind of been interested, and in, uh, even though I didn't get the vinyl yet, um, Blackjack and <clears throat> its history, um, it's interesting to hear how, you know, what he thought of uh, Bruce. He's very, you know, high on Bruce and, and you know, Michael Bolton. Um, and then the other parts where he's talking about, um, I mean, well, he talk, going back to Blackjack, um you know, they didn't really, unfortunately, they didn't really take off or anything. They just kind of, like you said, petered out or whatever. Um, and uh, but then he, he he was successful doing, you know, still creating music. Uh, you know, for instance, like I think what he said, uh, Cindy Lauper was Cindy Lauper, Joan Jett, Joan Jett, um, and some others, right? Um, so uh, yeah, he's kind of got a great repertoire of, of history of um, playing music and, and 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 going keep it keeping it going, which is good. He seems like a great guy. Yeah, and I, I loved his correction of me when I asked him about who he locks in with when he's playing. He's like, I don't lock mm. in with anyone. I'm the foundation. <laughs> right. And some drummers, right. you ask that backbeat is about drums and bass being in you know synchronicity and that's the fa that's you know that's also layer two of the foundation but he's absolutely right the drums are the foundation unless mark wants to disagree mm. it's interesting i i oh. was listening to that interview and i found that comment interesting i'm not going to say i find it arrogant but i find it interesting because uh there's two kinds of drummers i've played with there's the drummers that drum the song and you have to follow them which can be good and can be bad. And then there's the drummers that listen to everybody, what they're doing. And you can, and that's the kind of band that you can sit there and you can extend something. You can, you know, play a verse part a little bit longer. If somebody comes in late and stuff like that because he's aware of what's going on. I'm not saying that he's not that drummer who couldn't do that, but he's kind of giving me the impression that everybody has to follow him. So if he plays a bar short, too bad you have to follow him kind of thing, which is, you know, got to be careful with that kind of performing but he seems like a very good professional drummer obviously he's played with all kinds of people cindy lopper like you said and all these other people and toured with joan jett and stuff like that so obviously he's good and if i'm not mistaken julian wasn't sandy there at the first one and playing with some sort of he was he wasn't he there with a tribute band playing on stage that night remember when we went to the bar i don't remember he was there was like a bad company tribute band no yeah, maybe, but you know, I've done four rock and pods, so they all become mm -hmm. a little bit of a blur. Yeah, so because I know, I know we went that night, me, you, and uh, I don't know if Lonnie went, but we went there, and uh, I'm pretty sure he was drumming because his name was familiar. I think it was him. So, anyways, again, it, the blur is 
still with me as well a bit. But uh, he's a, he's obviously very knowledgeable. Uh, I'm not that familiar with Blackjack, so hearing his stories about it, I'll be honest with you, I I'm gonna want to grab the album myself too. So. Yeah, and I recommend it. You know, go check out that second album on YouTube first, and then mm-hmm. th- they're vastly different albums. Uh, they had uh, was it Keith Olsen for the second one and Tom Dowd for the first. I mean, yeah, both of those guys. It's the Olsen connection with Billy Squire, which uh, result I think resulted yeah. in Bruce doing that work. Can I can I just say one thing though? I mean, it's interesting when you compared the producers saying that Tom Dowd was one that had a big impact on him and influence on him, and how. The second, the second album was done with Keith, right? And how it didn't do as well, which is very fascinating to me because Keith Olsen ended up being one of the big producers of the time. And you would have thought that his push and his sort of impact on it might have given them a little bit extra push. But I also don't remember what year that was. So maybe Keith hadn't 80. hit the mark yet. Yeah, okay. So that's probably still a bit early because Olsen started getting huge when he did like the White Snake, South Tide, Lady 7. And he also was do, doing stuff like, uh, uh, like he was doing, the, what's it called? Uh, no Rest for the Wicked, Ozzy and stuff like that. So that was in 89. So maybe this was too early for him to have that sort of impact or influence on a record. That's the last tolerable Ozzy album. No Rest for the Wicked for me. <laughs> after that I checked out alright next interview Mark Ferrari we'll be back after that interview alright so Mark Ferrari thank you very much for taking the time to join the KISS FAQ podcast today to talk a little bit about your music and career well thank you thanks for having me yeah first of all thank you very much for your support of my Aerosmith book that blew my mind that you, you'd be so interested in it and that's going to be my first question about the sole show that Keel did opening up for Aerosmith at Sullivan Stadium at the end of the Dunwood Mirrors tour it's just one show that you guys got to play with them I'd just uh, like to know your impressions about how that experience was on the bill oh for me it's such an amazing um experience don't forget you know the big three for me kiss led zeppelin aerosmith those those were the three bands well i guess you can throw acdc in there too maybe a little thin lizzy and ufo but those were the bands that really really you know impacted the, the, my choice in life as to what i did for life and and uh you know my musical dna so to, to play a show with my heroes was just you know unbelievable yeah that was in uh, front of thirty thousand people that yeah, day yeah that was a great show i uh i think Momsen was also on the bill too and uh that was maybe our first either our first or second stadium show because that year we also did the uh, texas jam with van halen so right in the same year, you know, I, I get to share the stage with, you know, two of my idols. Yeah, David Lee Roth and well, Steven no, no, Tyler. Well, actually, no, in 86, it would have been uh, Hager. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah there, there's my yeah. timeline off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was uh, Texas Jam. But uh, huge fan of Aerosmith. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I've gotten to be friends with those guys since then. And... Um, and Brad, actually, my Brad Whitford might come out to our show tonight. Uh, he lives here sometime. Right. Lives here in Nashville. Uh, but yeah, I remember that show. We were a little. It was very hot and humid that day. I remember we were just trying to get through the the set without uh, falling over. Right. <laughs> so. so let's talk about some of your musical history. Um, I, I want to focus uh, on some areas surrounding your work with members of Kiss because you've interacted with Gene, Peter, Chris, Ace Frehley. And Tommy Thayer, the current guitarist. You've got history going back with each one of these members. I have a lot of, you know, a lot of shared DNA with, with the band. Obviously, you know that Gene Simmons produced two, two of the Keel albums, The Right to Rock and uh, 
the next one, The Final Frontier. I, I wrote a song on Ace Frehley's album, Trouble Walking. Yep. It's a song called Five Card Stud. Yeah, I did demos with Peter Chris. They're floating around there somewhere. I don't even know if I have them, but I know we demoed two or three songs. And uh, Tommy is my, one of my dearest friends. My longest, uh, one of my longest uh, friendships in life is with Tommy. I met Tommy the, uh, the week I moved to Los Angeles in 1984. Black and Blue and Keel tour together. Tommy and I become roommates together in the late 80s. Uh, we've written songs that other artists have covered. And, uh, you know, our lives have been so parallel all these years. He's a dear friend. Yeah, you and Tommy have a lot of songs that you've co-written right. on your friend's album. Um, yeah, the album that came before that, Bad Medicine. That's that's right. And also, let's not forget, Tommy co-wrote uh, Four on the Floor with me, the lead-off track on the Cold Sweat album. Right. Uh, but going back to each one of these members, I'd just like you to sum up your observations of working with each one of them. Gene Simmons, obviously, you worked with in the relationship with he was a producer for Keel for those two albums. What are your observations on Gene in that role for you? Well, I get asked that quite a lot. I'll, I'll say it again and again. He was he was hugely instrumental in helping our band shape our sound. Okay, so he, he was very helpful in arrange song arrangement ideas, getting good performances out of us, you know, kind of keeping the peace in the studio. And obviously he was very helpful, you know, from the media point of view too. He was always mentioning Keel in interviews and uh, I know Ron, Ron and he did a lot of uh, press together too. But he, w he was very active in the studio. Um, he, he wasn't one of those guys that would just, you know, s you know s sit down and, uh, you know, get on the phone and, you know, call me when it's done kind of thing. Right. He, he was very active. Right. How did you feel about him bringing songs in for Keel? Well, on the, on the Right to Rock album, let's not forget that we... We started that album six weeks after we finished Lay Down the Law. So we start, we, we recorded the Lay Down the Law album in June of 84. Right. Two months later, six weeks later actually, we were back in the studio. So at that point in time, we had only three new songs written for that album. Uh, in our case, it was uh, The Right to Rock, Back to the City, and there was one other one on there. I'm, I'm drawing a blank now. We have three new songs. We re-recorded three songs from The Lay Down the Law, uh, Speed Demon, Tonight Your Mind, and the Rolling Stones cover. And that left a, a void, you right. know? So Gene, uh, you know, Gene being Gene, well, I've got some, some tracks for you guys, so we right. wound up re recording three of his. Okay, so it, yeah. it, it wasn't a negative side of it, it was a necessity side of it. Yeah. That, that's the only thing I'm, I'm trying yeah. to get clarity on for myself yeah, there. Yeah, we played, uh, I think the only song we never played live in Keel, one of the only ones was that song called Get Down, which is one of Gene's songs, but we played the other two, Easier Said Than Done and uh, So Many Girls, So Little Time. Right. Or So Little Time, So Many Girls. We, we played those live, we enjoyed them. Now what about Peter Chris? because he had a challenging time uh, at that point in the 1980s, and yeah. I believe you were working with him. Yeah. How was that relationship established? And, uh, you know, well, obviously the, you don't have those demos now, and yeah. they may or may not be floating around. What sort of material was well, it? Well, Peter came, I, I threw a, a big birthday party for myself when I turned 25. 
uh, this place called Barney's Beanery. I think it's still there in LA. And I invited everybody, and, and Peter came down, and, and uh, uh, he also had guessed it on the Black and Blue album, too. Right. Yeah, so, you know, we were all kind of just, you know, it was all these, you know, co-centric circles, overlapping relationships. And, uh, yeah, he asked me if I wanted to do some writing with him. And uh, I remember going to his house. He was living in Palos Verdes a couple times. And uh, it was very collaborative. You know, I think he had, he had some ideas that he was starting to flesh out. And, you know, songwriting is kind of like having a catch with somebody. You know, you throw the ball to yep. them, they throw the ball back to you. You throw the ball to them. And that's sometimes how songwriting is. So I remember it being a very collaborative process with him. Now, what about the Ace song? Because you wrote that yourself, yeah. and just because of business, yeah. Ace has a credit on yeah. it. Um, tell me about the writing of that song and how it ended up getting placed on Ace. Well, okay, so that 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 was due to my my good friend Eddie Troy, who at the time was uh, I think a vice president at Megaforce, and right. and, uh, and Ace was signed to Megaforce, and uh, he asked me. He asked me if I wanted to do some writing with Ace. You know, I said, sure. Uh, but I had this idea, you know, Ace being, you know, a card guy, right. that he, he would probably gravitate towards something that was card related. And so I came up with, you know, I wrote Five Card Stud on my own. The original demo actually was sung by Oni Logan. Right. So, um, and uh, that I presented to Ace. He loved it. He cut it with his band. I think he actually played it live for a while too. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So you know, a really a, you, you didn't end up doing any work on that album because he seemed to have everyone in LA, you know, from that scene kind of doing backing vocals on. Yeah, Trouble no, Walking. I, I didn't. I didn't perform on the album. No. Yeah. Um, when you look back to your career, what are kind of the artists that really motivated you? to keep persevering within the industry. What keeps you going? Well, first of all, it's all about passion. Music has always been my passion. You know, I distinctly remember picking up the guitar the first time when I was just nine years old or about to turn nine and asking my parents to buy me a guitar for my birthday, which they did, you know? So for me, music has been the only thing that's, you know, been consistent in my life. Right. Yeah, yeah I played sports when I was younger. I was okay okay baseball and okay at basketball but I didn't I didn't grow past five foot ten so I, I wasn't gonna be a basketball player and I I just got better I got better at guitar you know and I just loved the way music made me feel and especially when I got a little older I started seeing bands kiss first band I saw in 1976 matter of fact I, I look forward in your book here right that, that show at uh, Niagara Falls Convention Center we talked about that and after seeing kiss that day I that was that was it for me. There was no turning back, you know. And tonight we've got Keel Fest 2 going on. I mean, what does that make you feel? 40 years on. That's right. Keel is a band that never really broke out in the 1980s. Just it happens to a lot of bands. But here we are 40 years later, and the music's still being celebrated. And there's a lot of people here today who want to talk to you well, about your music. It, it's a true testament to what music means to people. That this music is still relevant to some people 40 years later. Um, again, it, it, it's a blessing. It really is. You know, um, it's hard to believe. Yeah, for me, I met Ron in. Um, uh, it'll be 40 years in March that we met. So it's 
when you live long enough, I guess you, you get to celebrate these wonderful anniversaries. Right. Now, coming out of the COVID era, where touring has been decimated for artists, you know, how does that make you shift your approach to music now? You you do licensing, don't you? Well, and you yeah. Write. I, I got I got involved with uh, um, producing music for film and TV, and I, I started a music library very very early on in the, in the 90s. And I was very successful with it. I sold that business to, to Universal back in 2007. Um, Peel, we, we got back together again in 2009. That was to celebrate our 25-year anniversary. Right. So we were playing intermittently since then. We, we were not going on the road for long tours like we used to, but you know, weekend stuff and uh, some of the higher-profile gigs like the Monsters of Rocks and the. Um, you know, rock Lahomas and the outdoor festivals and stuff. So it was, we haven't been touring, uh, you know, in, in, in the uh, in the '80s sense, but just spot, you know, spot. Right. You do a gig. Yeah. When it makes sense but to do so. You mentioned COVID, so we haven't played together tonight. Will be our first gig since February of 2020. We were on the Monsters of Rock cruise when, when that cruise docked, like the second week of February of 2020. Everything shut down. Yep. So uh, we're looking forward to it tonight. Well, what are you looking forward to in particular? Is there a song that you are, can't wait to play for the audience in particular well, that means I, a lot to you? Well, I t I'll let you in on a little secret. Tonight we're actually debuting a brand new song. Awesome. So, yeah, a song uh, that Ron and I wrote together. Uh, never been played. Uh, nobody's heard it yet. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to see it how the audience reacts to that. And of course, you know, The Right to Rock is always a fun song. We always have some prizes, you know, when that song comes around. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting, getting on stage with the guys again tonight. My final question for you takes us back to KISS. And as a friend of Tommy Thayer, they're on the end of the road tour now, and he's filling out the boots for the final shows of this band and has given 20 years to that band that you became a fan of at the start of your musical career. How do you feel, having been a good friend of Tommy and still to this day, that he is up there and he takes so much stick and he doesn't throw any of it back. He just gets up there and plays well, night after night giving honor to the music. It's a testament to what an amazing guy Tommy is. He's, he's just an amazing guy. And he deserved that gig, and I can't think of anybody else that would have been a better choice for that gig. You know, um, I'm sure Kiss will keep him busy in non-touring things. You know, there's always a book, there's always a TV show, there's always wine, some wine caskets, whatever, some merchandising thing. You know, Tommy was Gene's assistant before he got the the guitar gig, so. I'm not worried for Tommy. I'm sure, I'm sure you know, and he's in tight with Dr. Key. I'm sure. I'm sure there's yep. a future there for him. But uh, Tommy, if you hear this, I love you, and uh, looking looking forward to uh, having a little more FaceTime with you now that you'll be off the road for a bit. All right, uh, Mark Ferrari. Thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you? MarkFerrari.com. That's, that's simple. That, that's that's simple. You can email me there and. Uh, Everything and everything and anything we've talked about today and more is up there on the site. Yeah, because there's much more to your career than that little surface that we've been able to scratch in yeah. 15 minutes. Mark, thanks again for your time. Have My a great pleasure. rest of the day. And thank you for uh, for these books. These books are an amazing accomplishment, and uh, I hope your listeners go out and buy them. Appreciate it.
All right, Mark Ferrari, incredibly cool guy. He uh, actually mm. came by the, t- the table a couple of times as well and chatted. Very, very nice fellow. I believe uh, Mike Brunett had him on his show as well um, recently. So that that was also very interesting. But, you know, his for me, the first question I wanted to ask him was about opening for Aerosmith, the one show that they had. Because that was, a, I think, 28,000 at Sullivan Stadium, last show of the Dunwood Mirrors tour. So uh, he's written with everyone in Kiss, basically. You know, Vinny, Peter, uh, not Vinny, um, you know, working with Gene. So we went through, you know, the Kiss connections on that. And obviously he's very good friends with Tommy. Um, Ken, your thoughts on Mark Ferrari. Did you like Keel back in the day, by the way? And do you have any Keel records? Because I do actually have the first... I, I, I think I have the the first three albums. I had those two. Uh, the, the Gene Simmons produced albums. I did. I remember. Uh, I did buy those. Um, of course, I have to restock those too now. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was interesting hearing how that all went down with Keel, and how Gene got involved, and how he talked about you know Gene arranging and and all these ideas, and how he was in the studio sounded you know like he's did a great, you know, Gene did a great job uh, with the band uh, in the studio. And then the talk about, um, you know, they had to whip out that one, I guess it was the second album, uh, and it was like only six weeks. Yeah. Right, that time. And uh, saying they only had a few songs. And uh, so then Gene, you know, of course, he had a, has a million <laughs> songs. So yeah. he offered some songs to them, and which they did. And, and, uh, and that you know, well, that worked out pretty well. Um, and I guess they re-recorded a couple from their that first album. Uh, re did a couple of those. So um, yeah, it was really interesting hearing that and about Keel and and how that all you know kind of went down. And 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 then and then later on, you know, working you know writing with Tommy, writing songs with Tommy and and that sort of stuff. Uh, He's written a lot with Tommy. Yeah. A lot of stuff, so it's like, oh, I, I didn't even know that, I didn't realize that, so it was kind of new, new to me, interesting. Yeah, and to think that there could be some demos with Peter Chris as well, which oh, that's right, right, which yeah. which is very cool. Mark, Mark Ferrari. Uh, Mark Ferrari is a name that I was really familiar with, uh, mainly because not I'm not not that I'm a big Keel fan. I mean, truth be told, I don't own any Keel at all, but. The thing is, I was a huge circus magazine reader. I have like a, 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 just piles of circus in my shelf still from back in the day. And they were they were the darlings of circus magazine, if you can believe it. Because every second episode, every second magazine I got there, there's always some sort of, you know, you know, those little, uh, you know, pictures, like page size pictures of a band in there. They'll, you'll flip it through and there's like Ozzy there. Mm-hmm. And you flip it the next side and there'll be another band in there. And keel were there all the time like constantly there's always pictures of him and mark ferrari holding your guitars and making all these you know cool poses and stuff like that in circus so i was always familiar about keel i'm pretty caught up with their you know doings because of circus magazine they were in that constantly so i'm familiar with them and you know i was unaware of as well that he had such a connection with tommy thayer and that that's that's interesting because you know these songs i'm curious because i don't know his history as a songwriter if what these songs that he's done with tommy if they've appeared on other albums have they appeared you know on anything kiss related like that that's one thing i'm hoping that julian can just kind of touch on for a second year after but i i know that 
he's a decent writer, obviously, because he wouldn't have been involved with so many different people if he hadn't been. So uh, is there anything that I might be familiar with that he's done with Tommy or? With Tommy, uh, you're probably not that you're familiar with, but you can check out, you know, those collaborations on YouTube as well. Mm. There, there's quite a lot from Mark Ferrari and Friends um, and the album that he did the year before. Um, I don't know it well enough to be able to say off the top of my head, and I, I haven't kept my interview notes from that, but it, it's up on YouTube. Mm. Um, I, should probably, I should probably find a couple of songs to put in the links for that for people to check out. Mm-hmm. All right, one interview left to go. This is Anthony Fox, producer, multi-instrumentalist, but also um, one of the go-to guys for doing mixing. Um, So we'll be back after that interview. All right, so I'm here at the Rock and Pod Expo. I'm joined by Anthony Fox. Hi. And I guess you're better known now on the other side of the board. You work on the production, mixing uh, side of the house. I'd like to just start back in time at your entry into the music business itself and how you got started in rock and roll. Yeah, well, uh, I started out uh, in the late 80s and moved to Los Angeles, as many musicians did. And I uh, uh, joined a band called Tommy Gun, and we got uh, a lot of notoriety, and I eventually was able to audition for the Alice Cooper um, release for Trash. It was Poison, the song, the single, and uh, uh, auditioned for that, and then got the actually got the part, and that kind of started my whole rock and roll career. Being on MTV during the summer of '89, uh, it uh, it pretty much took off, and then um, did the second single. Bed of Nails, right, and then moved on. You know, he he, he actually had a touring band, and I was uh, able to work with him on that, which really kind of advanced things. Right, and you also got into the studio at that time with Gene Simmons, who was working with Doro. Uh, believe you played drums on Unholy Love. Actually, I again the the uh, the song was already recorded, and I came in for the video. They they must have seen me with, with the Alice Cooper or something, and. And uh, they, the management contacted me and said that Gene Simmons had referred you to uh, do the music video for Dora. All right, and that, and then you also did um, Wayne's World, which is a similar. You're playing a band on screen. Correct. Yeah. Years later, uh, I was asked to audition for Wayne's World, and um, got that gig. Had a lot of luck. Swing. Yeah, and. Uh, and then we did the uh, that movie turned out to be a box office hit, and then we did Wayne's World 2, and then uh, moved on to uh, joining Beautiful Creatures in '99 at the right. end of uh, at the end of the '90s. So Beautiful Creatures got the opening slot for some dates on the Kiss Farewell tour. That's correct. How yeah. did dates like that come to a band like Beautiful Creatures, and what were your experiences like opening for Kiss during that tour? Well, uh, um, just had some openings, uh, actually three dates, and uh, it came from uh, a connection within the band, uh, and uh, we we pretty much, uh, it was a favor 
done done for beautiful creatures, and it was an awesome favor. But we got to open up for Kiss three shows, and um, it was a great experience. It was actually uh, I think the the first. Uh, major show for Beautiful Creatures to, to play as a band. Right, playing for the original Kiss as well on yeah, their final tour. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, were you a Kiss fan growing up? and Or if not, what were some of the uh, musical influences that are central to your identity as a musician? Yeah, I was a Kiss fan back in, you know, when they had, uh, in the 70s when they blew up, the late 70s, you know, I was a kid, a very young kid time but I, I, uh, I remember listening to uh, Detroit Rock City and that's when I pretty much became aware of KISS during the, the uh, KISS Alive 2 I believe and then Detroit Rock City that song really right. opened my eyes. Right what other sorts of bands did you take inspiration from in your youth? ACDC, Aerosmith, um, I mean, you're good just lot, there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of it's so many different rock and roll bands. It was more, it was mainly rock. Yeah, I mean, the fields were very fertile in the '70s, so that's correct. The bands yeah. were falling off trees. So after Beautiful Creatures, you start, uh, I guess, popping up more on the other side of music, mixing, working on the technical side. Um, you worked with Aerosmith starting, I think, in 2006. You mixed with Marty Fredrickson their NASCAR redo of Back in the Saddle. How did that project come about for you? Um, I started working with Marty um, in September of 2006 on some projects. And then uh, as we finished up those projects, um, he asked me if I'd like to mix the Back in the Saddle for their commercial. And that was the first project that I worked on with Aerosmith. Now, has he been a, Marty been a partner or is he more of a mentor? Uh, how has that relationship uh, formed for you? Um, Mentor slash partner, right. you know, like over the years partner, but mentor in the beginning, he, he really showed me a lot and learned a lot from him. Because over the last, you know, couple of decades, Marty Fredrickson is a really big name when it comes to that side of the industry. So it's it's really cool to, you know, hear someone who's worked with him. You then uh, did some work, um, Stephen Single, Love Lives, yep. mixing on that. What was it like working with Steven Tyler? Uh, were you just working on the files, or did you have personal interaction with him now that everything's become so digital? Yeah, I pretty much, uh, Marty had produced the song. He pretty much recorded Steven, and I just had the uh, the files to do the mixing, and I worked with Marty on that. So to the layman who just listens to music and consumes it, can you explain to people what a mixing engineer does to a song? Yeah, so we, we uh, pretty much adjust the levels um, to a, a nice listening level, or, or I, I guess uh, the different uh, instruments to a nice li listening level that works. Um, and then, I mean, that's pretty much what it is. Make it sound good. Yeah, make it sound good, just make it right. And then it gets mastered and sent out to the consumer to listen to. That's correct, yeah. Right, so you also worked with Aerosmith. Um, did that grow out of the the uh, initial work that you'd done with the NASCAR project? So they were trying to make an album for many years before they managed to release music from another dimension. Um, how did that relationship develop and that project itself? Well, that was through Marty again. Um, so when we did the NASCAR, uh, we continued working through 2007 on different projects. Uh, and then we were asked to do the uh, Activision head 
Guitar Hero featuring Aerosmith, and that was the next biggest mix job that I did. That, that was 34 songs that I mixed, uh, all their hits, to match the actual sound of the CD. What that is, is there are stems that you have to make, and then uh, as, as you're playing the game, you're able to mute the guitar stem, and then all the music keeps on going. Now, if you use the actual track from the, uh, the CD, if you were to mute, you'd mute all the sound. Right. They wanted to keep the, the guitar muted, and then, but the trick is that you have to make it sound just like the CD, but people are used to hearing, so. Right, and do they provide you multi-tracks to work off from that, and then you then have to bounce down certain tracks in order to make that work for the games? So that was like, uh, basically they had the, the uh, actual original multi-masters bake the tape, right. which means they, trans they transferred into Pro Tools and then I had the Pro Tools sessions from the original masters. That must have been an absolute trip to get to work on. Uh, it's an experience where music listeners out there will never know what it feels like to take a two-inch reel into a studio, pull it into Pro Tools, and then be flipping through the faders on it. Yeah, it was really a great experience uh, listening to the songs, everything from uh, you know the early days, the early 70s, and, and hearing all the outtakes that, that got muted on the album. I was, I was able to hear all the, all the takes in between the, the vocals and and stuff. It was really great. And you'll often have a lot of uh, elements buried in mix that are on the original tapes that you get to unearth. You become an audio archaeologist when you get back to go back to the full raw recordings. Um, yes. I'd like to ask you about working with Ace Frehley. In 2009, he did his long-awaited, finally released solo album, Anomaly. Anomaly, pardon me. And uh, you did some mixing work on that and some other work, I believe. Yep, I did mixing work and some recording. Uh, at, the, at the final hours, he wanted to put a lead on one of the songs, and uh, he asked if I, he could use my guitar. I have a, I have a, a, a 77 Les Paul, Black Les Paul, at, uh, and he was, he was mentioning that, uh, that uh, he wanted to use that Les Paul to get that sound for his, his album. But many years before then, I actually, um, Use that same Les Paul on stage opening for Kiss, and we didn't know each other at that point. So it's really a, a bizarre um, circle of, of using the guitar on stage opening for Kiss, and then he's actually holding my guitar, recording the solos on his new album with my guitar. That must make that guitar a very special instrument to you. I take it you still have it? I do, and, and I don't tour with it. I just I keep it on the wall. <laughs> yeah, keep it on the wall, keep yeah. it safe. I, I mean, that's just a magical guitar. So what did you think about working with Ace on that album? I mean, knowing his history, I mean, it was so amazing for us as fans to get new music from Ace, but for you who'd been a fan and to have opened for it, I mean, how do you look at it through your lens? I was really, uh, it, was, it was a great experience. Um, we uh, have a new relationship from then on, so now, you know, um, it, it just, it was great. Yeah, him being uh, an idol of mine throughout the late 70s, 80s, 90s, and then working with him in 2000, um, it was 2009, and it was just been great. And you've worked again with him recently on Origins Volume 2, which That's was correct. his second installation of uh, cover songs. You did mixed work again on that? Yes. Right. And 
Do you enjoy those sorts of projects when artists brings you cover albums, or, or is it a job? Well, I've, I've worked on, uh, I think now I'm at over 500 releases, artist releases, so to me it's just a, another uh, adventure just working on new projects and I mean it doesn't matter if it's cover music or original music it's just music and it's creativity and art. Right and you've got a reputation in the industry of providing excellent quality mixes for artists to keep coming back to you for. What are some of the things that you're working on currently um, across the spectrum of the work that you do? Yeah I just finished the uh, the, the uh, latest Buck Cherry uh, mixing with Marty and um, we he asked me to finalize the mixes with him and I did the mastering for that album that's their 10th release it's, uh, it should be out um, this year and I'm currently working on uh, a 40th anniversary live DVD from Night Ranger featuring the symphony orchestra and that's gonna be amazing that's another great so, American band yeah who also open for kiss yep and uh, and a couple other things. I just uh, mixed and mastered and played drums on ten songs, including did the video single for a band called Damn the Planet, and uh, played drums in the video and mixed and mastered a band called Lola Vane as well. Awesome. Well, Anthony Fox, where can people find you? You can find me at www.anthonyfox.com. Fox is spelled F-O-C-X, so anthonyfocx.com. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Anthony Fox. I had, uh, you know, wanted to talk to him about mainly the Steven Tyler connections because he did a lot of Steven's early solo stuff and got those stories. But he also worked on Anomaly, and he op he was a member of Beautiful Creatures, opened for Kiss for three shows in 2000. Mark, back to you for that. Yeah, it, it was interesting to hear uh, his work on, uh, you know, Anomaly and stuff like this because I, it, it's a name that I wasn't too familiar with, mainly because I always. I uh, was familiar with the Fred Fredrickson, I believe that was the name that produced yeah, Marty, the anomaly. Marty Fredrickson. Yeah, yeah. I was always familiar with him, and he was the people that the person that always people talked to, as far as you know, when it came to anomaly and stuff like that. So I was unaware that he had such a role to play on that album, and uh, obviously by the sounds of it, he's a good mixer, and you know he has some interesting stories to tell. Uh, truth be told, when I got to his interview, I had already like blasted through three or four ones so i was starting to get a little like losing my train of thought on it so i don't remember too much of the interview but i do know that the the, the comments that he made about ace and working on that uh were, were very 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 interesting because like i said i i would always thought that Fredrickson was the main man behind the sound of that album and it's interesting to make note that he wasn't so okay any takeaways from anthony fox's interview not, not really, because I, I can't remember much, and I'm, I'm wondering if I even watched the whole thing on this one. <laughs> well, you, so, can go, you can go back to this point. I'm going to have to go back and watch it now, because um, uh, I, I think I, do, I missed the Ace part um, about you know him working with Ace on Anomaly. So obviously I missed something on this one. Uh, I thought I watched them all, but maybe I didn't watch them all. <laughs> well, there we go. I will now. All right, so that's all the interviews from Rock and Pod. Um, so from Ken, Mark, and myself, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for spending time listening to the Kiss FAQ podcast today. 
All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.